Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's gallery is David Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 166, an interview with Guthrie P. Ramsey, Jr. Welcome, Dr. Ramsey. May I call you Guthrie? Please do. Wonderful. Guthrie is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a music historian, a pianist, a composer. Uh, currently, I think you're a professor emeritus of music at the University of Pennsylvania, right? Yes. I, I have to say, a little bit of a fangirl squee, I really enjoyed going out to your site and then it took me out to the music that you'd been involved with, and I went straight out to Amazon, downloaded Black Child, A Song Cycle, and I really liked the album. And my first question is, are they still albums or are they collections now? What is the Carmen Parlance? Well, I think it depends on your age, unfortunately. Um, I'm of the, <laughs> I'm of the age where they, <laughs> I still call them albums, you know, and then uh, there's another distinction out there in terms of the length of recordings. If you have four or five songs, I think it's common to call them EPs. Okay. Yeah. And well, yeah, uh, that's been around a while. Yeah. What I want to know is when did we stop releasing albums and start dropping them? <laughs> <laughs> Same time we started dropping beats, I think. <laughs> Just, I don't know. It just doesn't sit right with me. I don't know. I think I think that was December 1975. That's fair. But oh, I, when this tie of a song cycle, it actually took me back to, I loved that it seemed that the 70s, late 70s and 80s is where we actually started having whole concept albums generally. And I thought that was really cool that this was a song cycle. Also, I wanted to say that I love cheese curds also from Innocence. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That, that uh, artist is uh, Vince Anthony, who uh, is on my record label. And uh, he goes by Wavy Wilson now. He's uh, younger than I am. And, you know, these uh, younger musicians often change their names and... <laughs> Uh, to change their handles. So it's a very fluid situation, but I, I love his work as well. Yeah. I wonder if it has something to do with the way we have talked to different authors who have uh, Delilah Dawson, for instance, has things she'd written under Lila Bowen under different genres. So if I was a musician that started in one genre, but I really wanted it to be taken off in another genre for a different audience, I think I could see changing the name. I've, often thought about changing my name, you know, my pen name anyway, uh, once I retired from uh, university last year, because I, I think I kind of uh, kept my, uh, my shirt buttoned up, you know, for many years, because, you know, being a professor at uh, the kinds of institutions that I taught in, uh, it you you kind of have to keep mind your p's and q's you know because you you're not just advocating for your own career you you are often needing to boost up your students and write letters of recommendation and you you don't want to you know write certain things or say certain things but since i retired there's some things i think i want to get off my chest well <laughs> I, we I, are I, an I, audience I, for you for that not, here. Not, <laughs> 
<laughs> you're not representing the institution. Yeah, yeah. You know, I so sometimes I think that, you know, it, it might free me up if I took on some different name and and, and you know, because you it, it I've built that up over many years, this idea that I had to keep a certain, you know. Yeah. You know. I hear that. I mean, so do I call you Scat Cat? What would you like to be called today? (laughs) Scat Cat. Well, Scat Cat, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We are mostly here to chat about you wrote a collection of essays called Who Hears Here? And I really enjoyed them because I, as I said, I have an undergraduate in ethnomusicology. Don't tell anybody, but I never did enough with it. But I really loved it for the different way music is represented. You had a whole bunch of quotes through it that I literally copied him down thinking, yes, that's fantastic. Or yes, I really love that line. And, and I wanted to grab with one of them. The first thing that grabbed me right away was from the very first essay that talked about musicians having social contracts with audiences, like agreements that create expectations of sonic organization, audience reaction, marketing strategies. And that encompassed so much in a sentence that was neat to think about. Yeah, sure. I, when I say co- social contracts in, in that um, instance, what I'm talking about is, you know, one of the first things that I teach or taught students was that when we come face to face or ear to ear with a certain, uh, with a, say a new musical form, or we don't know what we're listening to, we, we try to place it somewhere and we usually place the music or try to place it in already established categories of sound in, uh, that I you know, refer to as genres. And uh, when we place it within a genre, then we automatically bring in all of these expectations of what it's supposed to do in the world, how we're supposed to react to it. I often use the, the uh, analogy of, uh, or the example anyway, of if you're in a at an opera and the soprano hits a very high note and it sends a shock wave through your your system uh you don't stand up and say hallelujah amen you know praise the lord well you might if it was the first night she got there i mean i've seen a lot of small town opera and if if the queen of the night actually hits that you know high c we're all cheering okay i can tell it's going to be really hard for me to get through this Yes, you're right. I guess you're right. right. Well, so in, the, in general, though, the, yes. the social contract is, in, at an opera is, yes, the, you're all there to sit and listen respectfully. Right? Absolutely. And right. if you're as, in a gossip, yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was, go ahead. Yeah. And, and if you're in a in a gospel church and the soprano hits a note that you really like, it's perfectly acceptable to respond uh, out loud, let's say. So, you know, that's, that's part of the contract. In fact, mm-hmm. if you sit down and, and, and not respond at all, you're kind of breaking the contract of expectations in that musical event. Yeah. I hear you. There was a time when... My, I, I belonged in an Irish world music band, and our fiddle player took us to an Irish session. Now, the guitar player and I had been more, you know, brought up through the classical, this is my orchestra, this is the band, this is the ensemble. And I had to say that going to an Irish session music was like if you were Catholic 
going to a Southern Baptist praise ceremony for the first time, and you're not sure when do you kneel and when do you stand up, and you're like, oh, and why am I the only person standing? Damn it, I came in wrong again. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's all about, you know, learning the rules of engagement. Yeah, same with uh, playing with uh, small jazz groups. You learn uh, the conventions of who solos when and uh, how do you know when to take solo and how do you know when you go back to the head and all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. And if it's, uh, uh, let's say you're a, a young jazz musician who is the, the, uh, the side man or side woman in a, uh, in a band with an established leader with a great name, you don't take longer solos than they do. Right, right, yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yep. Now, there was another argument in the same, this was in the same one where you talked about that I wanted to ask. You discussed a very interesting thing called Pan-Africanism that I was wondering when you were discussing Pan-African, talk a little bit about it. Does it have the same challenge of one America when there are frankly so many different Africas. I mean, Ghana has a very different rhythmical sound than South Africa. There's different instruments and that's not even looking at North Coast, Central Belt, or, you know, the Coast Senegal, that kind of thing. Is it a construct that helps or hinders? Well, I, I think that that's a matter of, of perspective when the idea of Pan-Africanism emerged in the American context, it was about, uh, an idea that would link uh, Black peoples around the planet against the kind of uh, brutal, you know, institutions and brutal situations and social arrangements that they were enduring. So it was about uniting uh, people uh, for a common cause. Now, of course, when you start uh, uniting people under a, a flag or or an idea uh, without thinking about how things might be different, you kind of flatten out the uh, the kind of rich uh, variations you have um, among uh, the people. So yes, it's a, it can go either way. I could see that. I was, I was thinking because we had chatted with a lady named Sumiko Salson, who was very much a, a researcher and a historian on the topic of black women writing horror and black horror and she had a lot to talk about the post-colonial influence on that and it wasn't just america here it was in england of how everything that in the horror genre was like well it was othered it was bringing up haitian religions and other you know all of the af you know the from af the deepest africa to the different places of diaspora and people ways that they'd been enslaved and talking about how a whole genre had arisen around making it other, making sure that it was separate. And I kind of liked this idea of a Pan-Africanism paralleling that in its own way, saying that it does kind of say that we're all part of something and came from somewhere. And I think that can be very powerful. Indeed. I think a key term in uh, what you just said is this idea of the, um, the construct, you know, that these are ideas and processes that we use to do something in the world, not necessarily that it is uh, necessarily capital T truth, but it can be someone's truth to think about this, uh, uh, you know, how things fit together and how things, you know, fall apart. Right. The way I tend to think about such things, I have a more 
technical orientation, but um, there are um, you, you have models, you have mental models that you construct of things, mm-hmm. right? So, and it's perfectly reasonable and possible to to have more than one mental model of something in your mind at the same time, right? You can have a a model that says, okay, all of these things taken as a whole, it's a, it's a homogeneous uh, population or whatever. Um, but then in another context, you have a, a model where um, you look at the differences within those, uh, within that population, for example. Right. Every, every perspective is a perspective from somewhere. And this uh, kind of relativism that we're talking about has been a very important uh, idea in, in, in my book and in my, all of my research, really. I could see that. And there was another question that I had when we were thinking about, I was thinking about the, the entirety of music, you know, theory and, and the popular ideas that were popular through these every decade. And I love that you kind of went through that, but I was thinking, we were talking about how we have ragtime and Joplin and some of those were the first almost uniquely American musical style. And I was interested that they kind of came up as nationalism was a white guy in Europe. I mean, Europe had Respighi and Rimsky-Korsakoff. In America, Joplin very much was defining a brand new type of music, something never heard before, uniquely American, a unique American narrative. And I was wondering if it was just a sign of the historic time of the time or just a coincidence you think that nationalism globally came up that way? Well, I think that there was there were nationalisms going on in that moment uh, throughout all of the American culture industry, uh, because in the particularly in the late nineteenth century, you could say that uh, for the most part, uh, America could be thought about as a cultural colony of Europe because the uh, musical. Um, uh, musical taste and uh, from certain you know segments of the 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 uh of society really pushed this idea that uh anything homegrown couldn't be good right and what really picked that up was the uh, birth of the modern uh music industry the culture industry where these networks of uh theater owners and music publishers and uh when recording started, record labels began to think about themselves as a system. And the system was designed primarily not to promote nationalism, not to uh, promote, uh, you know, uh, this idea that we were separate from Europe, but to separate people from their money. Right. (laughs) I I had a thesis statement here that, that I wanted to lay on you and tell me what you think. We might owe the entirety of jazz as a popular genre that took it from a dancing place to a music hall to Bessie Smith. Is that woman entirely responsible for creating jazz as the something in between two different worlds? Oh, I would uh, frame it maybe a little differently. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, what's fascinating about Bessie Smith at that point that she was... uh, you know, uh, uh, clearly one of the uh, the the biggest uh, you know stars in in the the blues tents and, and all of that is that uh, she emerged uh, at the same time as the the trumpet virtuosos of you know like uh, 
uh, Louis Armstrong. And so you have these two different ideals of what it means to front a band. That is true. Yeah. So that's that's kind of how I put her in. um, She and Ma Rainey, let's say, as sort of uh, the foils of the great men who would stay, you know, play in front of the bands and command all of the attention and uh, and do these uh, kind of virtuosic displays of uh, of uh, heroic, you know, music. And, And they were kind of working in another directions to put you know women in in front is there is there a reason that uh it seems like women in well in in jazz uh in in a lot of things but in in jazz uh came to came to front bands and and so forth as vocalists um you even to this day you don't you don't hear a lot about uh virtuosic women instrumentalists i mean I've seen a few, but Lizzo. Yeah, (laughs) Um, but is there a reason that they that uh, that they came to prominence that way, and that men? I mean, there were men who were vocalists too, but the male instrumentalists were uh, leading bands, but not female instrumentalists. Well, I I think that there have always been uh, women virtuosos. Uh, It's just that society would not give them the same uh, lanes of support mm-hmm. that um, men had. And even today, especially as these, uh, you know, walls have come crumbling down, uh, we have people like uh, Terry Lynn Carrington, who has just uh, published uh, a, a, a book, a, a new real book, where there are 101 songs written by, you know, women composers. Mm-hmm. And uh, and even from you know Mary Lou Williams, uh, Lil Harden, uh, and even if you go to particularly if you go to the uh, the gospel lane, those women were tearing it up. It's just that the uh, music industry always favored the men and gave them more opportunities to get contracts to lead bands. And, and and all of that, so it's not a matter of them not existing. Oh, you, oh yeah, I, certainly, yeah. I, I understand that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but l- let me ask the question a different way: Is there not is is there a reason that men were allowed these opportunities? Is there a reason that women were allowed opportunities as vocalists, but not as inter- instrumentalists? I mean, what I mean, they weren't uh, offered the same opportunities as men necessarily, but they they made these they made these inroads vocally first why is that you know i think that there's uh been a uh, a kind of unique reception of the uh the woman vocalist uh ever since you had the uh you know the phenomenon of jenny lind you know the mm-hmm. swedish soprano who came across who came uh pt barnum from, yep <laughs> PT, yeah exactly pt barnum created this appetite for the singing woman and uh, before she even came. So these people were, you know, waiting for her. So again, it's a matter of marketing. It's not a matter of uh, what people wanted. It's a matter of what the music industry told people they wanted. Right. You think they generated their own demand? Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's, Here's a 
I just thought this up. So this this is kind of my my role on this podcast is to throw out these harebrained schemes. So um, is is it possible that um, that women vocalists got opportunities because there was no way for a man to reproduce the instruments that they were using? In other words, soprano and alto voices. In other words, they had a corner on the market. If you want to hear somebody sing high, you gotta you gotta listen to a woman, right? Well, not historically. There were the castrati, you know, who oh, true. Uh, okay, yep, yeah, <laughs> that that had the, uh, the you know very high high notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is you know very interesting. I I was at a concert uh, this past uh, weekend, and I had heard this uh, a male soprano uh, soloist, and mm-hmm. the sheer power that he was able to achieve in that range was just otherworldly, you know? So it was and, a falsetto? Uh, yes, definitely a falsetto. But mm-hmm. the, the, not the Eddie Kendrick's uh, soprano. I mean, you know, the falsetto, the light kind of romantic soprano, but the mm-hmm. soprano that kind of, you know, will knock your wig off, you know? <laughs> And you you just couldn't believe what you were hearing and singing at the same time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, the ability to be heard without a microphone, you know, before that was the before that technology was available, certainly probably has something to do with the tessitura that was preferred, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in 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 spaces. And then of course, once the microphone uh, became part of the scene. Uh, I, I, I know that the idea of, you know, sex appeal and, um, has something to do with why women were, um, I would call it, call it exploitation really, because if they, they weren't allowed in these other lanes that they probably could have fulfilled, you know, just as easily as any man. Uh, The best clarinetist I ever heard was on a trip to New Orleans and, Standing in front of the band, it was, it didn't even have the sex appeal because she looked, I remember thinking, I'm sure I've seen her behind a DMV counter, but I've never heard anybody play a clarinet like her. It was just wow. So Right, right. Yeah. And you know what? And somebody gave her the gig. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I like that you brought up the other challenge in your own industry about Black feminists and Black musicologists that are female, because you're right, there's a lot of musicology that in general is old white guy. And then getting Black musicologists studying jazz, but Black female musicologists have got to be as rare as hen's teeth. And I think I I agree with you uh, that you were talking about in your essay. There is an energy and there's a different line of questioning and thinking that might be missing and is I hope somebody out there will say maybe I should encourage my kid to study music theory and music history. Absolutely. You know, uh, we all bring our own subjectivities to the table when we do do work, even when we do something called, you know, objective scholarly work. And, you know, uh you can't avoid the uh the things that made you you and somehow are always going to enter into your work and enter into your artistry. And, you know, so I am happy when the diversity of perspectives happen because we get 
lots of different, uh, you know, views into a topic. And I don't like to put hierarchies on what on what people think, you know, uh, because I always think the more the more the the better. I, I agree. That's something that we're finding. I work in IT security in my day job, and we find that the more diversity that we have within our teams, the faster problems get solved because there's a wider variety of people like from around the world, around the genders. People just think differently. And if you have a group, you get kind of almost, I don't want to say it's not gang mentality, that's the wrong thing, but group, group think. I mean, you get a bunch of frat boys, any frat everywhere, they're going to start reacting the same. But if you break it up and start really mixing it up, you get different opinions like... I want to hear women talking about how do we move big data analytics applying to ethnomusicology, like if I was doing <laughs> Shankarian and style analytics to trace rhythms back to different countries in Africa, can I trace it back at a deeper level of say, than just saying, hey, Louis Armstrong changed everything and Stan Kenton integrated it, can I take it deeper to say, I see that this had a lot of people from this area in this music because you can hear the original beats. You can hear, here's the Senegal beat that you can hear that moved up the coast into Ireland. And would more variety of getting women into your studies find just randomly interesting things to study and then map out and dive well, deep? There, there wouldn't be random. That's the that's the point, right? The, there's a lot of um, evidence in in a lot of fields, psychology, sociology, and business management and stuff that that diversity produces not just faster solutions, but better solutions to problems and uh, uh, different, uh, again, getting back to models, another another topic that I um, am into, uh, there is, uh, you, you apply a number of different models to something and take an average, for example, uh, of all these models, and it usually turns out to be a better a better uh, estimate or a better solution than than just any one of the models. Right. So, yeah. so just you know, thirty thousand foot view, diversity is good, which you know we all <laughs> we all believe, but there there is science backing it up as well. Right. Well, I I think that I'd like to get the diversity happening so that we can kind of move beyond thinking that way. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> You know what I mean? Once you you, you start uh, getting everybody at the table, you know, who knows? We might get and getting everybody at the table and removing all of the social arrangements that uh, create inequality at the table. We might be able to uh, achieve getting somewhere where those things don't even matter anymore. Right. I was thinking about how when... I got my history of jazz, they were very, you know, this was the 80s, so there was a certain, you know, everything you were writing about, and this is what they were talking about in the 80s. I was like, literally, the yes, I remember, you made me remember, and it was beautiful. But at the same time, I was pondering that they were talking about everything came from the spirit, you know, the spiritual, the church songs, etc. And I thought, what about all the love songs? What about all of the work songs and love songs that were not about a religious bent, but still were deeply important to a culture. And I'd love yeah. to see those go deeper. Uh, yeah. Well, the um, the thing about the spirituals uh, being used as the font of uh, of uh, Black music making, uh, 
on the one hand, I can understand the the focus on on the spirituals as a body of music because they represented in many ways uh, the first quintessentially uh, black music that became popular music. So it's uh, as uh, the historian Sandy Graham writes, it's became the first black popular music, not just the you know the religious aspect of it, but the fact that it was disseminated through these tours and through uh, sheet music and books as this, you know, great new thing, you know, it's just, so think about uh, the the spirituals as being a hit Beyonce record in the, in the <laughs> late 19th century. Yeah. I, I liked, I, I think that makes sense, but it also brings it into another point that you had in your book that, um, they're talking about key, it was Baraka was talking about key processes in black music culture. You know, there's commercialism, there's urbanizations, there's professionalism, it's corrupting real aesthetic. And I actually wanted to come up with an argument for, I haven't met Baraka, but I'm going to fight them on this and say, this routes to market is how you can spread music and make it popular. Because for a long time, we looked at the radios being purchased by a limited number of stations were picking on what was played and they cut a lot of women out of music. But you have, once you had like Queen Latifah and Lil' Kim and then Nicki Minaj and Cardi B, you have all of these others are using social media better, I think, than their male counterparts. And I think they're getting it out there. So maybe the New York is still kind of owned by black males in rap, but I like to think that from Georgia to Texas, women are really rising here. And that's neat using, it's, Commercial, is it commercialization if you are creating your brand and you're pushing it out there and you're getting people brought into it? Well, that commercialism uh, argument that Baraka was uh, forwarding in the uh, early 1960s was uh, being used, it was being utilized for uh, a point that he, a finer point that he was making about uh, Black culture in, in America. And I share your um kind of uneasiness with that particular part of his argument because, you know, essentially when he was writing that uh, book between, you know, I guess he, if, if it was published in, in 1963, you know, uh, the Motown hits hadn't, haven't, hadn't started, you know, really hitting the airwaves right. <laughs> yeah. quite yet. And he eventually had to come up off of that, uh, idea because the music that he was actually really promoting at that time was the uh, kind of more free jazz uh, at at that moment as being the uh, music of black liberation, uh, but unfortunately it it was never widely popular uh, with the uh, black masses of which he said he was talking you know for so. Uh, he would come off of that, you know, you couldn't sustain that particular argument because everybody wanted to be dancing in the streets with Mark Aretha and the Bandellas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I appreciate that you got a call out for Aretha being the uh, first lady of soul because yes, she was. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Now, this was neat. So I are you going to are we going to see more writing out of you? Are you working on more pieces now, more essays or Different, are you going to go in a different kind of writing now that you are retired from teaching directly? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Uh, be besides uh, this new book, Who Hears Here, 
I am uh, halfway through a narrative history of African-American music, which will be uh, kind of more of a trade book. I've also completed a book about uh, Black grandfatherhood, which is a kind it's a a book of uh, collected uh, social media posts uh, that I I did during the first year of my grandson's life. He was born uh, during the pandemic, and uh, I established this kind of make-believe relationship with him uh, through our FaceTime uh, <laughs> quote-unquote conversations where I'm putting words in his mouth, and he's just fully formed, you know, smart ass, <laughs> a sweet, sweet, a sweet one, you know, and uh, so like my kind of grandfather. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're going back and forth, and we're chiding each other and uh, loving each other, and basically, it grew out of my the 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 pain and frustration. Um, of not being able to breathe the same oxygen as my uh, grandson. So that's uh, coming out. And I have a, a another idea that I'm working on, which is called 39 Days of Black Radio, which was a, uh, a musical lock that I kept when I was diagnosed with cancer in 2019. And I uh, kept a musical diary as I was going through radiation uh, as they... You know, it, when you go into the the rooms, they are always playing music. Yeah. Uh huh. And I asked them to. They, you know, they at. You know, they're very polite and they want to know if you had any preference. I said no, just let it randomly play whatever it's going to play. And I kept uh kept a diary every day, and and you know, and I narrate what I was going through. And so it's thirty nine days of black radio when musicology meets radiology. <laughs> well, I am I'm glad you came through your radiation okay. I am okay. I'm more than okay. I'm I'm perfect. Excellent. <laughs> well, yes. I, That's quite a claim. I yes. wanted to close by <laughs> tell, telling you something that Dave and I did for Christmas one year just because I think it would make you giggle. As it turns out, my in-laws live next door to Kenny G. So Christmas came, I'm like, Dave, you know I'm crap at presents, but would you like to come up and play really bad trumpet duets with Christmas songs with me, and we can point our bells right at Kenny G's door. So for every time that you've been trapped in an elevator listening to him, he will have a little piece of you. And we did that. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure he appreciated it. <laughs> we don't even know if he was home, but I'd like to think that he did. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think it's, those are the moments, you know, you have to give experiences in life because Presence, we all have too much crap, but, you know, those moments. And that's why I love the story of your Black grandfatherhood, because even if they're just an exchange of instant messages that make you laugh, make you smile, I think it's the connection that matters between people. Indeed, indeed. I, I personally think this book is going to be a hit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't well, wait just, to read it, so please do send a copy. <laughs> in a game of one of these things is not like the other, it seems like uh, the only only book that you mentioned that doesn't have something to do with music or musicology. Yes, true. Uh, oh, the... Uh, Black oh, Grandfatherhood. Yeah. Oh, Grandfatherhood. yeah. Well, there's some music in it, of course. Well, you know, I'm, I'm yes. sure. But... Uh, of course. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I guess that's a... Uh, I had thought about it that way, but I guess that is a kind of divergence from my typical obsessions. Well, I, I guess that's what Jeannie was originally kind of driving at when she asked if you're going to write something different. That, that to me, seems like the different thing. That's different. 
<laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, he's he's awfully cute, as I, I, as I you know, like every grandfather thinks their, their kids are cute. Naturally. <laughs> well, we will put links to Guthrie's new book, Who Hears Here, and other topics mentioned on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ramsey. This has been so much fun. What a pleasure and a hoot at the same time. <laughs> Excellent. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milk and Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both performed by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Steam, Arm Street, and any place where you go listen to really good music. And hey, thanks for being here. <laughs>